and welcome to the latest edition of the Motor Mouth Podcast. Um, as you all know, the Motor Mouth Podcast was set up to promote the Motor Insurance World event at Twickenham in March, which unfortunately, because of the uh, coronavirus, didn't go ahead. Now, one of the sponsors of the event at Twickenham was E2E Total Loss Vehicle Management. I'm delighted to say today I'm joined by its Chief Operating Officer, Neil Jocelyn. Neil, hello. Hello, Swifty. Good afternoon. Are you all well there out in self-isolation land? <laughs> yes, climbing the walls a little bit, but uh, safe and well, thankfully. Well, that's good. Um, well, I suppose we get straight into it. And uh, I suppose it's, it's worth saying that, you know, this year we've had, what, Brexit, we've had flooding storms and now, and now coronavirus. And insurers have long been talked about uh, as having good risk governance. But how can they properly mitigate that risk and prepare for such large-scale events, uh, particularly from a motor perspective, which is obviously what we're focused on here? Yeah, it's been quite a year, hasn't it? I think, um, you know... I, I can see this from both sides of um, the table, having spent most of my professional life working for insurers. Um, the floods earlier in the year um, were, relatively speaking, quite localised and presented a much different uh, problem to the one that we're currently facing. Um, I think, you know, a word that has been used many times, and I'm going to use it again, unashamedly, is unprecedented. Nobody <laughs> could ever have imagined this wide-scale impact. Um, and, you know, when, when I've been in my previous lives, when I've been pe preparing for BCP, you generally you, you prepare your contingency plans in the event of something happening locally, maybe something to your building or, you know, something even in the local area. But nothing where the whole effect the whole of the uk is starting to shut down um so that's brought some really big challenges i think undoubtedly it, it's bringing some new ways of working and i hope that some of those new initiatives that we're all trying out will stay with us actually and help improve tomorrow's workload um i, I think that the, the way that we've uh, approached it swiftly really is um from from my reflection, I don't think that when I was a uh, a work provider with a supply chain, I think to be fair, I hadn't really spent that much time with my supply chain on contingency planning. I'd kind of create my own little plans in isolation, and, and I'd I'd give it an expectation to my supply chain on what might be needed in the event of. I'd never really sit down with them and go through those plans in any great detail. And I think that's one thing that um, we've been forced to do over the last couple of weeks with our, with our clients. Um, we've kind of taken the strategic objectives and said, OK, well, how can we turn those strategic objectives and what tactical actions do we need to take? Um, but let's not forget the things that we'd like to focus on, things that really matter. So, for example, COVID-19, that's our focus on keeping our people safe, our focus on respecting government instruction, supporting key workers, you know, really playing our part to help the UK recover. So I think that that's been quite a good exercise to go through. And I'd like to think that that's not something that we now forget, but that becomes a bit more um, usual practice. 
Do, do you think there are any other new opportunities that motor insurers could take advantage of and, you know, given this current situation we're in, predicament? Yeah, I think, um, you know, the, the, the public really are in a bit of a state of panic at the moment. Um, good communication is key to that. We've, we've seen that uh, through some of the customer engagement that we've had over the last couple of weeks. Um, electronic ways of engaging with customers. Uh, we feel as an industry, we've been um, developing that over recent years, but, but at a time when con customer contact centres are closing down and everybody's uh, doing their best to work from home, some people are working from home on company equipment. Most people are working from home on their own equipment. Now, telephone um, service is, is not particularly easy. Uh, and so I think this is really driving more of a, a um, electronic ways of working with customers, whether that's through own systems, social media, um, the, the, all those uh, platforms. I think that... Um, for us, as I mentioned, keeping key, work, keeping key workers' vehicles on the road is paramount. Um, there are some other urgent cases as well. Um, and, and, of course, you can't take the moral high ground and, and just refuse to help somebody because they shouldn't have been out on the road anyway. You know? Somebody's out on the road and had a crash. They need some help. I think that one, one of the things that, um, just thinking back to the floods earlier on in the year, um, I'm, I'm not sure that public, and I'll include myself in this really, the general public truly understand the effect of a, a flood and, and what that has on their vehicle. So, um, you know, thinking that mostly it's toxic water getting into vehicle electrical systems. Um, you know, this is not just a question of okay, the, the vehicle's had some water on the inside and it smells a bit. So if we give it a good clean, then it will be fine. Now, I think there's an educational piece around that uh, for the, the general public and, and the impact of uh, those floods. Because you know, once, once all the flood water is drained away, for all intents and purposes, the vehicle looks okay. As I say, on the inside, it looks a bit uh, grotty and probably smells a bit, but on the outside, it looks okay. Um, some some of the other things that uh, we've had to put in place, um, you know, for this period of lockdown, and we don't know how long that's going to last, but um, safety and security of vehicles is really important. I mean, you know, from a salvage perspective, these vehicles are assets, and, and the more that we can look after them and protect them, the more that we can expect to get for them uh, in any subsequent uh, process. So... Uh, safe and secure storage, free of charge, uh, is, is paramount. And I think, uh, you know, a final thing that uh, we, we've been experiencing really is on, on the risk management side, uh, looking at what we're trying to achieve with our clients, looking at how we can achieve those objectives, maybe need some alternative solutions, but let's talk and collaborate and let's understand where that gap is. Um, so for example, we've, we've put in place emergency roadside recovery. We're not asking any of our members to go out on the road 
to visit customers to pick up vehicles. Um, but uh, there are some um, roadside recovery companies that are still out operating. They're seen as um, cr critical businesses that need to uh, keep operating to keep the roads clear. Um, and we, we've partnered up with some of those and are, are now putting that in place to help our clients. So I think I think you're right. I think there are a number of things that uh, come out of this that that will provide for a better tomorrow. Uh, I suppose if we can now yeah, move on and focus on the sector in which, you know, you, you really operate. I mean, how does salvage fit into the wider motor insurance and repair sector? Yeah, um, I'd, I'd like to say that it has a really important <laughs> part, but actually I think it, it plays quite a small part at the moment. I think it's growing, but it's, it's playing quite a small part. I think from my perspective, Swifty, um, vehicle manufacturers, the repair industry and the salvage industry has got to become more joined up. Um, for, for example, manufacturers don't produce new parts for vehicles that are 10 years old or more um, generally. And for some manufacturers, that's coming down to seven years. So if you've got a seven-year-old vehicle, you'll struggle to get a new part for that, unless someone is holding it in stock. Um, to, to think that for all the cars on the road that are over seven years old uh, or over 10 years old, you know, that, that can, can create quite a tension. I think that the main barrier really in um, salvage becoming involved in the repair industry as a wider piece. The main barrier, in my opinion, is our thinking. I think we, we all have an assumption that customers want new for old. Um, however, I've seen various research recently which suggests that customers are probably more open to reclaim parts than they're given credit for. Um, we've got some other barriers course around quality, uh, around speed, uh, logistics of getting the parts to the repairer at the right time, um, and also quite rightly about the provenance of parts. You know, where has that part come from? What, what, what's the history of that part? But um, I think that, you know, that there is a huge opportunity for salvage to become more engaged and more involved in the whole repair industry. I think that, uh, that there is undoubtedly there's a bit of a fear of the unknown. Um, but having spoken to a number of repairers uh, who are supporting reclaimed parts program for insurers, they report some report back very positively with some real great success. So uh, I think the opportunity is there, but at the moment we play quite a small part in all of that. So I mean, Neil, it does sound. I mean, you know, one of the subjects which comes up time and time again insurance world is the the cost of, of, of motor repairs it sounds like the salvage industry could help that kind of claims inflation oh 100 percent yeah i think um generally we we find that uh, new parts prices um versus reclaimed generally reclaimed parts see a saving of about 60 percent rrp um and whilst the market prices of individual parts are determined by uh, supply demand yeah, that's quite overall. That's a really hefty 
saving. And just to give you an example of that, a straightforward Ford Fiesta bonnet, RRP is circa 250 quid. Well, as a reclaimed part, you'd probably pick one up for about 100 quid. Um, we're, seeing, we're seeing parts of vehicles, just kind of standard parts, if you like, um, becoming more and more expensive, which is a challenge. Uh, for example, uh, Voxel Astra—that's a—that's a fairly popular car on our, out on our roads. Um, factory fitted LED headlamps are over fifteen hundred quid each. Um, if we think about the Toyota Prius, Toyota Prius have a badge uh, at the front, um, and they've mounted their um, adaptive cruise control camera behind the badge, which has meant that. They've had to replace the, the, the usual badge with a badge that this camera can now see through. And the price of that has gone from circa 50 quid up to a, well over 550 quid. So, you know, the, the, the price of some of these parts um, are really shooting up. And I think that there, there is a real strong case to say that um, reclaimed parts can really help manage the increase in those costs. And I, I suppose there's also you know, a sustainability argument here. I mean, you know, we're, we're told that we're supposed to be thinking about everything environmentally friendly now, moving to a greener future. I presume there are a, a number of eco-friendly benefits from using salvage and second-hand parts in car repairs. 100%, yeah. So um, the Environment Agency, which is the regulatory body over all salvage businesses in the UK, uh, they they set target um, that ninety five percent of the vehicle's weight must be recycled. Um, obviously, within the E two E network, we use um, salvage agents that meet or exceed that target, um, and we find that most material is recycled. You know, glass, metals, including precious metals, some really sophisticated uh, ways of um, stripping. Uh, to, to um, get pure copper, for example, um, but also tyres, battery cases, fuels, plastic. There, there's a lot that um, is already recycled. Probably uh, the, the general public don't know about. And, and I, I would include, respectfully, uh, I would include uh, insurance claims people in that. You know, um, the, the insurance industry has spoken for many years about corporate social responsibility and um, having high level objectives around that and, and you know in my experience of salvage uh, the vehicle salvage market is already doing a lot that can help insurers meet their CSR objectives from from my own perspective um, you know I've, I've got a uh, I've got a 14 year old car I'm very proud of that it just turned 200,000 miles on the clock um, and, and I want to see how many more miles it's got. But I, if, if I needed a, a replacement headlamp for that, I wouldn't go new because it would make the, the, the other headlamp uh, look ridiculous. So I, I'm quite happy to buy secondhand parts. And um, <clears throat> I say, Neil, I mean, in a recent uh, Motormap podcast, we discussed um, car technology and, and how rapidly it is evolving uh, present. How do you see the changing landscape in terms of vehicle tech and what difference does it make uh, for you and your business? 
Yeah, this is a tricky one, actually. There are many, many positives to new technology. You know, the, the work that Fatim Research do, for example, in, in making sure that those initiatives relate to safety aspects um, is fantastic. I think from a damaged vehicle perspective, the change in vehicle technology is adding cost and complexity. I think ADAS still remains a little bit of an unknown. And generally, it's accepted that uh, ADAS will uh, help reduce crashes, but um, when crashes happen, they'll have higher severity because of all the technology that's in vehicles. Uh, front end of cars, uh, for example, are loaded with technology that just can't be seen. I mentioned the Prius badge earlier on. Uh, BMW laser technology um, in their headlamps, it's an optional extra. Um, it started off in the top end kind of seven series models, but it's coming down the model range. And, and these headlamps are linked to GPS units and uh, adjust the, the lights according to the condition. But these are over five grand each. Um, and that's in the front end and in the rear end. The, the rear end's not too shabby either. We've got parking sensors and cameras. Um, for example, again, Ford Fiesta uh, in the uh, dual wing mirrors, the dual illumination coming into the newer models, which is helping see into the blind spot. So you, so you get a warning if the car is in the blind spot. Of course, you need a radar sensor, and those radar sensors are mounted in the rear bumper, and they're over £500 a unit. So, you know, the, the technology is fantastic. I'm seeing that uh, it's adding um, cost and complexity when the vehicle is damaged. And I'm not sure that as an industry, we really understand that cost and complexity yet. And I, and I think that, you know, it's a lot of that cost and complexity which is behind. Um, motor insurers reporting increase in uh, claims severity costs. I, I suppose one word that comes up uh, again and again nearly in insurance in, in, in this space as well as any other space is collaboration. So what steps have you been seeing taken to kind of ensure that collaboration has been enhanced kind of throughout the whole motor insurance ecosystem, whether that's claims, underwriting or whatever? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I completely agree with you that you know collaboration is the key to all of this, um, and we need to try and understand each other's perspectives and what what each other um, have to offer to a better solution. I don't think we're quite getting that right at the moment. From our perspective, we're we're speaking with industry a lot. We we speak with, for example. Um, the Institute of Automotive Engineering Assessors, we speak to insurers, um, we're connecting with key influencers like yourselves to help raise the issue and start to work towards a better solution for this, for us all. Um, but really, I think the, the three legs on the stool have got to be vehicle manufacturers, the repair industry and the salvage industry. So we get that whole finish um, discussion going on. Now, arguably, you could add insurers to that as well, partly because uh, they end up paying the bill. 
and partly because some insurers have their own repair centres anyway. Um, we, we, we have um, been involved uh, with a, a recent initiative that eBay have sponsored, actually. And this is to drive a quality kite mark into uh, reclaimed parts that they sell on their website. And it's been linking salvage operators in the wider repair industry. Um, and it's actually shown that, you know, progress is possible when we start to get around and, and understand each other's views. Um, but that's just one tiny piece. And, and it's not really helping insurers address in cost of bent metal claims. I think that collaboration needs to continue. We've, we've started it. Um, there's much more to do. From my, my, my own perspective, I'd really welcome contact from anybody that would like to get involved in that collaboration. Another subject which comes up time and time again is, is the future of mobility and changing face of vehicle ownership. Uh, how are we reacting to, to that part of the changing market? Yes, this is a really interesting um, piece, this, actually. Um, you know, personal finance, finance is much more readily available. It's heavily promoted. It's promoted by vehicle manufacturers, by finance houses. Um, and I think that the... the and I can say this because I'm very old, but the younger generation see a car as a mode of transport. They don't see a car as the pride and joy that I saw my first car as. Um, so I think that uh, it's meaning that the UK car park is getting younger. I think that um, it, it means that cars are probably not being as cared for as they have been in the past. I think it raises a question over whether it's easier to replace a car rather than repair, um, particularly if, if um, you know, the vehicle is there uh, as a commercial piece and it's already derived the value that it needs to derive, you know, um, it's quite easy just to say, okay, well, we'll scrap that vehicle and we'll buy a new one because that, that vehicle has given me all that I need to get back from it. Um, from our perspective, we're seeing a lot of investment from our members into training their staff. Um, a lot of members, because of the complexity uh, coming into the vehicles and because of the value in reclaimed parts, um, our members are now competing with body shops for technicians because of the skill required to dismantle a car and protect the value of the parts that are being dismantled. We're seeing a lot of um, investment into equipment, into premises. I mean, the, the, the salvage, forget the um, image of salvage yards that come up on the channel. Um, salvage business in the UK, it's a very professional business. Some of these guys are processing huge volumes every week. The businesses rely upon efficiency. Um, and, and there's no cutting corners either because they're quite heavily regulated by the Environment Agency. Um, so we're, we're working quite hard to try and change the definition from salvage buyer to a partner. And for us, it's got to be more about overall value than pure unit cost.
So if I was asking you to, to look into your, your crystal ball, it's, it's 2020 now. What, what do you think the future of salvage might look like by, by the end of the decade? Like I say, 2029, 2030. Jeez. Um, we'll be COVID free by then, will we? Let, let's hope so. Yes. Oh, Something even, <laughs> even worse hasn't come up. <laughs> um, okay, so... Um, there's there's a big question mark over whether um, electric vehicles are the future or not. Um, alongside that question mark, there's a suggestion that probably hydrogen cell vehicles are um, a better option than electric vehicles, although they're they're prohibitively expensive at the moment. I think that um, the, the adaptation of ADAS and the adoption of ADAS into mainstream uh, will continue. Mentioned about less crashes, but potentially higher costs and question whether this might drive more total loss vehicles. I think the UK car park is changing. Vehicles are getting newer. So uh, just to illustrate that point, 10 years ago, the average age of salvage across our members in the UK was over 15 years. Now it's down to about 10 years on, on average. Uh, so we're seeing the car park getting newer. Um, and, and we mentioned earlier on about how uh, manufacturers are reducing their production of new vehicle parts. I think AI is becoming a lot more pivotal for insurers in early decision making. And if we follow the AI through, and ask ourselves a question, okay, well, how quickly can we go from establishing that a vehicle is a total loss to making a payment? And, you know, with, with, the, with the best AI technology that we have at the moment, um, coupling up with uh, instant messages on phone and back payments, we know that we can, we can already do this in less than half an hour. Uh, so I think that that will become much more of the norm and settlement will become almost instantaneous, um, which again provides a huge attraction uh, for individuals and potentially they might have to wait uh, a, a week or more for the vehicle to be repaired. I do wonder what impact that might have on, for example, the mobility, particularly the credit hire market, um, you know, that instant settlement because um, potentially that, that wipes out quite a, a lot of need for credit hire claim, which, which again add a lot of cost to the um, uh, UK claims market. If I, if I look, it's quite hard to look forward without looking back, right? So if I look at uh, back in the mid-1980s when um, NSG first began, which was the root of, or the roots of uh, E2E. So I think members then were quite small scale. They were non-regulated. Regulation didn't come into the early 2000s, actually, of salvage yards in the UK. So they weren't the professional companies that we see today. I think the industry has come a long way since then. It's a very professional industry. Now. Um, it's shown how adaptable the salvage market is, but also how resilient it is to change. And I think that moving forward, there will always be vehicles on our road. I think that virtually 
uh, one in two people in the UK have a vehicle. Uh, so there will always be vehicles on the UK roads. There will always be crashes. Um, and there will always be uh, salvage vehicles that either have parts taken taken off of them and recycled and resold, or um, dismantled and destroyed. Uh, and, and I think that that is is the, the salvage market will continue to play that really important part for many years. Let, let's not forget that. Um, salvage income is, is typically the second largest income for an insurer behind premium. So uh, this is hugely important to uh, insurers. Okay, Neil. Well, on, on that note, I think we've, we've, we've run out of time. I'd like to obviously thank you for taking part in this, this podcast and look forward to meeting up with you when Motor Insurance World gets rescheduled around about September this year. <laughs> yes, indeed. Thanks for um, having me on. <laughs> that's right, Neil. Just like to remind you that, um, that we obviously did recently do the uh, Motor Insurance World live event on, on post. You can read the uh, uh, content that came from that on the uh, post site. Uh, and until the next Motormouth podcast, it's a goodbye from me. So cheerio all.